horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for joining us today. Ben, how are you doing? I'm a little sleepy, uh, a little tired, but uh, other than that, I'm all right. How about yourself? Uh, I could say the same. All right. (laughs) We've both had pretty busy days with me at work and you at an AGM. Yeah, so we'll see how this episode goes. (laughs) Do I need to pump some coffee into your veins? Uh, Get an IV out here? It's a little late in the day for coffee. uh, (laughs) What are we watching today? We're watching a weird one today. We're watching The Magician from 1926. And this is a movie that, until we started doing this project, I had never even heard of. So it's going to be, I think, a very interesting watch. Had you heard of the novel? No. Okay. Yeah, I had I had no experience with any of this at all. It, it's very bizarre. Part of that is because um, for many, many years this was considered a lost film. The Magician was released in October of 1926 by MGM, but the film received a lot of negative critical reaction. Oh no. Um, largely due to accusations of tastelessness. The film was seen as basically like pushing the boundaries of good taste too much and being too extreme and and controversial in that way. And that was where the majority of the negative criticism came from. That might mean it's going to be a good horror movie because horror movies should be doing that. Yeah, exactly. But that negative criticism meant that this film didn't get remembered like other films. And it sort of led to the film being ill-preserved and believed lost for a very long time. Eventually it was rediscovered and restored by TCM and then released on DVD in 2011 by Warner Archive. Mm. Uh, So now it's sort of started to re-enter the critical conversation about horror movies from this era. That's really cool. Like you, I did not know that this movie was a thing, but that's not (laughs) surprising because I'm not the movie person you are. Sure. I didn't really know about the novel either. Okay, yeah. The film is adapted from the novel, The Magician, from 1908, written by British author W. Somerset Maugham. Where do I know that name from? That that sounds familiar, but what's he famous for? Some of his most famous works would be Of Human Bondage and Razor's Edge. I think it must be Of Human Bondage, then, Probably. that I know him from, but... I mean, he's... A pretty prolific writer, doing everything from novels, short stories, plays, travel collections, okay. like a lot of authors did after the war. Mm-hmm. The W in his name stands for William, if you were curious, because I was. Whatever <laughs> sound is that? So he lived from 1874 to 1965. He lived till he was 91. Wow, good is- run. Good job, dude. Yeah. So he, he would have been alive for this movie. Yeah. Uh, I guess a lot of his works were adapted into movies. Okay. Some fun facts. <laughs> <laughs> he is rumored to have been the highest paid author during the 1930s. Well. And he is considered gay. Uh, he had two very long-term partners at different times mm-hmm. um, who were men. But he also had a relationship with a woman named Siri Welcome. Uh, she was currently married. 
Mm -hmm. um, but that relationship resulted in a daughter, so I feel like you could make the case that he was bisexual. Yeah, generally speaking, you know, your kind of um, lavender marriages or relationships for homosexuals don't usually involve, like, a woman who's married. Yeah, you don't adulterous. Have, yeah, you don't usually have affairs. And I mean, like, to be fair, the term bisexual wasn't really around at the time. Sure. So his mom had tuberculosis. Okay. And being a, a woman in uh, the 1800s, she was prescribed childbirth as a remedy. That sounds like a terrible idea. You have a, a breathing disorder. Try Pumping giving out birth. kids. That's... Mm. Yeah. So he was the fourth child, and in total she had six kids. Mm -hmm. The sixth one died the day after his eighth birthday, and his mom died uh, a week after his eighth birthday. Of tuberculosis. Right. Two years after his mom died, his father died of cancer in France. Okay, so he was like orphaned then at a, at a pretty yeah, young at age. Yeah, at ten. Yeah, wow. So he was raised by his uncle. And he, he grew up to write novels instead of fight crime. Yep. Okay. <laughs> uh, he became a physician to fight illness rather than become Batman to fight crime. Uh, actually, the reason why he studied and became a physician is because he didn't want to be a lawyer like his dad and his three older brothers, um, and his uncle was like, well, you gotta do something. So he became a physician. His three older brothers were all lawyers? Yeah, Got prominent lawyers. I hope they had their own firm together, like you just went to the offices of mom, mom, and mom. <laughs> if only it could be like mom and sons. Ugh. <laughs> Uh, he had been writing since he was 15. Despite learning the trade of being a physician, he published his first novel, Liza of Lambeth, in 1897. Its first print run sold out in a matter of weeks. Wow. And at that point he was like, not going to be a doctor no more. Sure. Going to do what I love. <laughs> cool. He does say that he appreciates the experiences he went through as a doctor because, quote, I saw how men died, I saw how they bore pain, what hope looked like, and what fear and relief looked like. So, um, after this big launch of his career as a writer, the next ten works, uh, both novels and plays, didn't really have the same popularity, unfortunately. Okay. Until 1907, when his play Lady Frederick uh, became very, very popular. And The Magician, in 1908, is the novel after that. Okay. Mm-hmm. He went on to have quite a prolific career. In 1915 is when he wrote Of Human Bondage, and in 1944 he wrote Razor's Edge, and that's his last major novel. Mm -hmm. And just kind of a cool side note, he served with the First Cross during World War I as an ambulance driver. Oh, cool. Overall, like, a really amazing life. I really recommend people look him up, because there's so much to cover that I, I just summarized, basically. I, I really recommend checking him out. The Magician was published in 1908, and it follows the protagonist, magician Oliver Haddo, and this magician character is based off of real-life occultist Aleister Crowley, Ooh. as many other literary <laughs> figures will, to follow will be. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, a little bit about Crowley. Yeah, a uh, little he, bit goes a long way. <laughs> he lived from 1875 to 1947. Um, he's kind of considered the most infamous occultist of the 20th century. He's described as a ceremonial magician, um, and he founded the religion of Thelema, with him as the prophet to guide humanity into salvation. 
he wasn't a very modest guy. No, no, he was not. He was quite the a-hole, if I might say so. <laughs> yeah, the whole religion of Thelema relies on a lot of Egyptian iconography and deities, um, but the basic premise or phrase that goes with it is do what thou wilt. So you should act in alignment with nature, align yourself with your grand destiny through magic. The main headquarters of this religion, with Crowley as its leader, uh, was in central London around mm -hmm. this time. Yeah, there's so much stuff. Like, if you... The info on Crowley is longer than the info on Mom. So, check... <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> I tried to summarize as best as I could. <laughs> yeah, like, whenever I end up reading, like, novels or, or, or any stories set in kind of the turn of the century, like, in <laughs> London, like, Crowley's gonna show up as like a weird villainous character like he just had such a sinister reputation with people mm -hmm. at large and like I don't think it was one of those cases of like mistaken appraisal like he went out of his way to like cultivate that negative reputation. He is a kid who had a large inheritance who decided to develop a cult of personality around him mm -hmm. around being weird mm -hmm. and part of the reason why I call him an a-hole is because he was pretty racist. Big surprise given his religions based off of Egyptian iconography. But uh, he also believed that women were morally inferior. He also was like a turn-of-the-century Englishman, right? So, I mean, yes, but I'm still going to call him an asshole. Oh, sure. <laughs> What's kind of neat is after The Magician was published, Crowley accused Mom of plagiarism. Mm -hmm. in an article to Vanity Fair. Okay. He wrote under a pseudonym, but it was Crowley. He accused Mom of plagiarizing several books, including The Island of Dr. Moreau, and all of these claims are fairly baseless. Mom responded to this criticism in his uh, autobiography, where he said, quote, It was a pretty piece of vituperation, but probably, like his poems, intolerably verbose. <laughs> Uh, oh, yeah, man, I these to mention guys... that Crowley was uh, quite the author himself. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> these guys kind of sound like they deserve one another. So just a brief plot summary of The Magician from 1908. It's a little long and convoluted, as so many novels of this time period seem to be. Sure. It also seems to take place over uh, a relatively long period of time, so I'm compressing time as I give you this summary. Okay. So, um, there's this surgeon named Arthur Burden, who is going steady with an art student named Margaret Dauncey. And they meet this magician named Haddo, who is this apprentice of this other occultist who they kind of know, um, just, uh, casually. And they don't really believe in his magic. Okay. Um, after a bit of a, uh, a fight, Hedo decides to take revenge and uses magic to seduce Margaret. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so Hedo and Margaret run off and get married in France. There's a lot of convolutions, but to simplify, Arthur tries to get her back with uh, the help of a friend of hers, um, and they find out that uh, despite being married, they have not consummated their marriage. With talking with Margaret, Arthur learns that she fears that her life might be sacrificed during the consummation because of magic stuff. Okay. Then later, <laughs> Arthur and uh, Margaret's friend uh, learn that 
Margaret has died of a heart attack, mysteriously. So they, they go to check this out, um, and they suspect foul play, obviously. Um, to prove foul play, they get Haddo's mentor, a cultist, to raise her ghost from the dead, um, and she says that, yes, Haddo did murder her. Uh-huh. And so they confront Haddo, and they fight. Haddo is killed by Arthur, but when they turn the lights on, Haddo's body has disappeared. Uh-huh. They go back to Haddo's house to be like, where would his body be? And in the attic, they find almost like a laboratory uh, of multiple tubes and chemical materials with uh, deformed life in the tubes. Uh, like, like, like homunculi? Basically, I guess. Okay. Um, and it was for the purpose of creating this life that Margaret's life was sacrificed. Arthur is like, grossed out, sets the whole place on fire. The end. Gotcha. I feel like, like, a lot of familiar themes yeah. in that. Like, you've got, like, some Frankenstein and some, the evil villain who, like, seduces the, the young heroine and, like, the... It's like if you mixed Dracula and Frankenstein together, almost. <laughs> yeah. So with The Magician being published in 1908, the film adaptation came 18 years later. The film, as I sort of explained at the top of the show, has been lost for some time, but it has sort of an interesting history, really tied up with the interesting history of the people who made it. So The Magician was released in 1926 by MGM, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, and was directed by a man named Rex Ingram. That's a great name. <laughs> he was an Irish immigrant to the U.S. who began in the film industry in 1913 and started directing in 1916. He worked for many different studios, but he ended up signing with Metro in 1920 under their head writer and executive, June Mathis. Uh, the two of them would make four films together over the next few years and became romantically involved. But their biggest hit was a film called Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, Cool. which introduced a then-unknown actor named Rudolph Valentino. And Valentino would go on to become a major sex symbol screen icon of the 1920s. And June ended up leaving Rex for Valentino. Oh, no. After the production of Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, she had discovered Valentino. So Ingram, in response, eloped with Alice Terry, who had been the film's female lead. So, oh, no. so, so she broke up with him to be with that movie's male lead, so in response, he married the female lead to that movie. Despite this, Ingram continued working for Metro as it transitioned into being Metro-Goldwyn and then Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, producing ever bigger and more extravagant films, pushing in each one for more esoteric explorations of the bizarre and the grotesque and the macabre. Uh, Ingram ended up developing kind of an obsession with grotesqueries and deformities. He liked to put, like, deformed people in his movies all the time in, in bit parts or, or mild roles. He would end up serving as one of the five directors on June Mathis's massive 1925 MGM production of Ben-Hur. Mm. This would be the original silent version of Ben-Hur. Um, however, he would end up going uncredited on the actual finished film, along with three of the other directors who worked on it. So only one of the five actually got credit. After that, he 
wanted to continue making films in his own way without interference from Mathis or from the other executives at MGM. So in 1926, Ingram and his wife, Alice Terry, moved to Nice in France and set up a satellite MGM studio there, (laughs) ostensibly to gain access to exotic European locations with greater ease, but in reality just so that he could make movies without anyone looking over his shoulder. That being said, it did give them access to a lot of personnel and assets that they wouldn't have had in Hollywood. It was in Nice that The Magician was shot in 1926. It was the first film I think they made after moving out there. The location of the studio in France gave Ingram and Terry access to a lot of European talent, most significantly in the magician, actor Paul Wegener. Mm. So we last saw Wegener in his film Der Golem, uh, and he's been acting since then, occasionally directing, but acting more frequently. He had appeared in Lucrezia Borgia with uh, Conrad Veidt a few years earlier. This film, The Magician, would end up being Wegener's only Hollywood film credit. Uh, simply because it was easier for him to go shoot in Nice than, you know, to go all the way to L.A., right? Ingram also gained access to a Serbian actor named Ivan Petrovic, who was enjoying a run in the French cinema at the time as a major sex symbol. And after this film would continue to appear in Ingram's movies as sort of a replacement for Rudolph Valentino, who had passed away in 1926 at a young age. Now, after Terry and Ingram moved to Nice, uh, she actually began taking a more active behind-the-scenes role in his films. Um, She had been acting for quite a long time and had sort of hit the big time around the time that Rudolph Valentino did, but she pretty much acted exclusively in his films. And a lot of critics uh, began to question her ability because of that. Uh, So she ended up taking on more and more of a behind-the-scenes role in his movies so that she could have more and more control and feel like she was more part of the creative process between the two of them. Uh, She was a very competent film editor and often assisted Ingram in the cutting room. And on occasions when Ingram became too moody to shoot on a particular day, uh, she would then often step in to shoot the day's footage. Is that like a way of saying drunk? No, he was just a pretentious artiste. Ah. The film was shot by cinematographer John F. Seitz, who had worked as Ingram's director of photography ever since he signed with Metro in 1920. He shot all of the director's films, but would go on to shoot many major films in Hollywood in the 40s, such as Sullivan's Travels, Double Indemnity, and Sunset Boulevard. Hmm. Even though the film is very rarely seen today, and even though the critical reaction to it was not fantastic at the time, It was um, a very influential film on the filmmaking community when it came out, particularly uh, directors like Todd Browning and James Whale uh, Mm. found it influential. Whale certainly found it an influence on his later film version of Frankenstein. And it bears in mind that part of the reason why this film was so influential on later directors but so kind of maybe ill-received at the time is that this was, you know, an American Hollywood horror movie, but it doesn't have the um, comedic element. Yeah. It doesn't, you know, undercut everything with a Scooby-Doo ending where we find out it was old man McGillicuddy the whole time (laughs) and that there was no supernatural elements. Like, it's a serious, bizarro horror film, you know, which made it very influential, but certainly the American public and critical masses were not really ready for that at the time, uh, which contributed to the negative response to it. Mm -hmm. 
So how can people watch this movie along with us? Well, uh, The Magician is available on DVD from Warner Archive. Uh, that's Warner Brothers' print-on-demand DVD service for older films. Uh, and you can order it through them off of Amazon. It also plays occasionally on Turner Classic Movies, since they did the restoration. That restoration is currently not streaming anywhere. There is a version on YouTube, which I think is a public domain version, as opposed to the, the Turner Classic Movies specific restoration. Uh, so that's the version that I've put on the Scream Scene playlist. The Warner Archive TCM version is probably the best one to go looking for if you want to get the best version of the film. And if listeners want to find that playlist, they can find it at our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. Uh, until then, we will have our intermission with a brief musical interlude, and we'll be right back. See you on the other side, everybody. Buddy to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Magician from 1926, directed by Rex Ingram and starring Paul Wegener. Sarah, what did you think? I really enjoyed this movie. <laughs> uh, I will say that the reason I enjoyed this movie is because of what it will inspire. Yeah, I think I think that's fair. Like, I enjoyed this too. It took me a long time to enjoy it. I'll I'll say that. Okay. And I think it's for the same reason, eventually I did enjoy this movie quite a bit, but it was almost like the, the thrill of the novelty of seeing all these kind of elements that we know are going to pop up later, and that, you know, are so credited as being classic horror elements from these later films, you know, and seeing those elements show up in this much earlier film that neither of us had heard of. Yeah, and it was also really cool to see parts of it are inspired by Hexen. Mm-hmm. And that's really cool because Hexen is near and dear to my heart, so... <laughs> yeah, one of the most rewarding parts of doing this series chronologically is sort of seeing this continuum of influences, you know, of, ah, you know, this film has taken this thing from this earlier film we've watched, and this film is going to inspire later films we're going to watch, and sort of seeing these films in their place on that chronological spectrum. Mm-hmm. Do we want to dive into the plot summary? Sure. So we open with Margaret, yeah. is the lead character's name, and uh, she's an artist in Paris. She's a sculptor, uh, and she sort of shares a flat or a studio space with her friend Susie, who's a painter. And she's carving a big old statue of a satyr, and it, it falls on her, and it's not good. Uh, she needs, like, spinal reconstructive surgery of some kind. Mm -hmm. So her uncle gets uh, Dr. Arthur Borden? Yeah. Uh, who's like a renowned American surgeon to do this like surgery on her and he heals her back and all these guys have come to see this surgery and they're like, oh wow, like what a, what a, an amazing feat to like heal this woman's back. And there's this one dude who's like, no, <laughs> like a, a real feat of magic would be just to create life from nothing. 
Yeah. And he's he's real intense about it. And immediately, because we've watched all these other films, we knew that this was Paul Wegener. Uh, he stands out like a sore thumb. He's so recognizable, I mean, in or out of Golem costume. He just has <laughs> such a distinct face with these... He has that wide face with these sort of cat's eyes in it. And then, like, he's such a big dude as well. It made me wonder how much of the Golem costume was actually padding, or how much of it was actually just him. Yeah, he's he's a large man, and he's great in this film as well. He's, he's so, so good. He's so melodramatic. It's such a great performance of this kind of egomaniac character. So he starts kind of following Arthur and Margaret around to different things, because he... he just gets interested in them. And um, he's doing some research because he's a, a magician, he's an occultist, and he learns that the secret to bringing human life about alchemically is the secret ingredient is the blood of a maiden, and she has to be very Nordic in appearance. That's required as well. Pale, blonde, blue, or gray eyes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and um, uh, Margaret fits the bill perfectly. Yes, so he starts following the two of them around and showing up on, like, in the background of their dates to, like, <laughs> glare at them dramatically and, like, flip his cape around and say melodramatic things. In one incident, they go to a fair and see some snake charmers, and he makes a big show of how his magic can, can do all these things. And then one day, he, he kind of follows Margaret to her apartment and waits till her roommate has left and slips himself in there. And it's hard to describe what happens next, but basically he causes her to hallucinate about her satyr statue, and suddenly they find themselves imagining in this kind of fantasy world that they're at this, like, bacchanalia in, like, ancient Greece. And this is the scene that's basically just the, the witch's Sabbath from Hexen. Paul Wagner's hair is gelled up to be devil horns. <laughs> And, like, there's some, like, pretty much naked dudes running around. Got to see a pretty good shot of a <laughs> naked dude's butt. It's pretty, um, pretty sexy for 1926, I guess. Yeah. Um, there are visions of, like, satyrs doing being women. Doing uh, what satyrs do, if you know your Greek myth. Yeah, but, uh... Yeah, nothing too graphic. Yeah, and so we come out of the vision, and Margaret's visibly upset, and uh, Paul Wigner's character, Oliver Haddo? Yep. Haddo's just like, yeah, there's more where that came from, babe. Hit me up any time, and then leaves, and we're like, what? <laughs> um, That's how you get all the ladies. Yeah, so it's, it's established that he's got some hypnotic pull over her, and he ends up summoning her to his place under hypnosis, Two days before she's supposed to marry Arthur. Yes, and she explains that to him. She says, you know, I'm supposed to get married. And he's like, well, no. And next thing we know, it's supposed to be their wedding day, and she doesn't show up, and she delivers a note to him that explains that she's actually gone off and married Hatto. And everyone's like, what? But Margaret's uncle explains to Arthur that if she did get married to Haddo, it was not of her free will. Mm -hmm. Because her uncle is also a bit of an occultist and knows Haddo's hypnotic tendencies. Yeah. So Arthur goes on the search for Margaret and eventually, after some time, tracks her down in Monte Carlo, where, like, <laughs> Haddo's running, like, a, a gambling scam with her where he's, like telling her what to bet on the roulette tables, and then they're winning tons of money, and it's like a James Bond scene. Yeah. 
<laughs> they're running this gambling scam, and Arthur and Margaret reconnect, and she slips him a note to, like, come and see her at their hotel room or whatever while Haddo is out, mm-hmm. where she explains to him that, you know, she hasn't been doing this under her free will, he's got her hypnotized, they haven't had sex yet, and she's pretty sure that the actual reason he married her was so that he could kill her in a magic experiment, and she's freaked out by this, of course. Yeah. Um, Haddo, meanwhile, has journeyed off to his laboratory in the village of La Tourette. It's like the village from a Universal Studios horror film. Yeah. And that's when this film, like, kicks it into high gear. Because now he's got, like, a dwarf assistant, and we find out that his laboratory is in a tower on the top of a mountain overlooking the village that used to be a sorcerer's tower that no one in the village will go to that basically just looks like Castle Frankenstein. Yeah. It's got the spiral staircase that goes up the center of it and the laboratory at the top. It's got babushka women in the town. like Saying that, that you can't go up there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you could swap establishing shots between this and the Colin Clive Frankenstein, and I don't think you tell the difference except for quality. For sure. Arthur and the uncle get Margaret away and put her in a sanatorium in Nice where she'll be, like, safe, essentially. Mm -hmm. Except that she's not, because, like, the second their backs are turned, Haddo just, like, kidnaps her and takes her to La Tourette. So now it's, you know, the big chase to the laboratory, and there's a a lightning storm, and we've got to, like, (laughs) bust down the door to the laboratory, and he's in, like, mad scientist gear on the top floor with this laboratory full of chemical gear and a big, like, flame furnace, and, like, he's got his scalpels and stuff, and she's strapped down to the operating table, and we're just in full, like, Universal Studios horror film by now, but it it does bear saying that this is an hour and a half movie, and we don't get to the part where we're at the laboratory and seeing that until an hour in. Mm-hmm. So all of the, the cool Universal Studios horror movie stuff is in the last half hour. So Arthur and the uncle show up, they fight the dwarf with the assistance of like a local drunk from the village that they've hired, and they make their way up to the top laboratory, and a big fist fight between Arthur and... <laughs> Haddo breaks out that lasts for quite a long time, really, going back and forth. I mean, I do like that the whole push with this movie has been like, oh, magic, but then it comes down to a fist fight. (laughs) (laughs) It's also established uh, at a certain point that Haddo is mad, that Mm -hmm. he has a history of, of having been confined to mental asylums and things like that. He's probably not He's not a real magician. He's just a crazy guy. Yeah. Um, so this fist fight breaks out, and eventually, after some tussle, Arthur manages to, like, kick Haddo into, like, the big open flame furnace that this laboratory has, and he just, like, burns to death. There's quite a bit of stuff after this of Arthur and Margaret, like, walking away from the tower, and the uncle, like, taking the formula to make artificial humans and burning it, and then, like, smashing all of Haddo's stuff and, like, blowing up the entire tower like there's a model shot in the exterior where we just see the entire tower explode yeah uh, and all this shot stuff but eventually you know they're safe so the movie comes to a close yeah i really enjoyed this movie i i see what you're saying with like the last half hour going to the town and everything and really kicking into high gear but i really feel like there are parts throughout the rest of this movie that you can tie to other films like dracula is kind of the 
clearest example mm-hmm. uh, with the shots on Hatto's eyes to show that he's hypnotizing people. There's no iconic use of light and shadow like you think of with Bela Lugosi's Dracula, mm-hmm. but um, the expression is there and Wagner walking and moving closer into the camera, that's all there. Yeah, the film kind of plays like a Dracula-Frankenstein crossbreed. Mm. where we've got this story about this older, charming, hypnotic, dark man who hypnotizes this pure woman away from her family and then takes her to his crazy laboratory <laughs> in a castle with his like crazy assistant to do experiments on and then the the fiance and the older man have to team up to stop him. Like that's that's a like really is just like Dracula times Frankenstein. Yeah. Personally for me I found that the first hour of the film just didn't measure up to that last half hour. I was, to be honest, kind of bored through stretches of this film. Okay. I do think that the thing that ties it all together is uh, Wigner's performance as Hatto. That just elevates, like, every scene that he's in. But I did find a lot of the earlier parts in the film kind of tiresome and tedious. I found myself thinking that, like, a half hour of this film could be cut out easily and then the pacing would be much improved. See, I disagree because Wagner's scenes definitely elevate the spooky mood of the film, but for me those carried through scene to scene to scene and like it definitely ramped up by the last half hour, but I I still could feel the tension, I guess. Okay. I didn't feel that. Like I I think, you know, the movie does by the end of its runtime clearly show itself as the the forebear of so much of these classic horror tropes that we've been Mm -hmm. talking about. But for me personally, it just took so long to get there. And the scenes without Wigner in them, I found to be really banal and pedestrian. They weren't even, like, shot as interestingly. Like, every scene that he's in, the shooting, in terms of the lighting and the angles and the compositions chosen, feel, like, inspired. And then if it's just a scene with just Arthur and Margaret, it's just completely flat. And it's just shot very proscenium and uninterestingly. And I just, there's so much rigmarole to get through in this film before it kind of gets where it's going. Like, the opening accident with the statue, the interlude at the fair and with the snake charmers, even the the fantasy bacchanalia vision sequence, the, the gambling in Monte Carlo. For me personally, all of those scenes kind of went on for a bit too long, where it was like, yeah, I get it, we're at a snake charmer. And didn't have enough to do with the rest of the story to feel as tightly integrated, like the gambling at Monte Carlo. It's like, what does this have to do really with anything else? They kind of, to me, felt like tangents that the director, Ingram, could kind of go on because he had no studio oversight to say, like, hey, man, like, maybe nobody cares. I think I gave it a bit of slack given that it is adapting a novel and the novel feels like there's a lot of time that passes. Mm-hmm. Going to Monte Carlo and all of these other things were for like what I would assume is kind of an exoticness of those places. Sure. Like, oh yeah, it's, I mean, it's very cool because you know that because Ingram was based in Nice, when we see 1920s Paris or we see 1920s Monte Carlo, we're probably really seeing those places. And that's like a, a cool novelty for us here in the year 2017, yeah. for sure. And so it had this feeling of like supernatural occurrences or power with this individual compared to the exotic locales. Sure. Yeah, I I get that. I guess just on a personal level for me, like I'm not saying... 
those scenes should have been gotten rid of. I just was feeling like the pacing was off in that mm. I kind of wanted to get through those things faster to get to the meat of the story. It feels like on a pacing level, the meat of the story doesn't happen until you're, you know, two-thirds of the way through the movie. I think the fact that those locations and things like that had that same kind of, like, oh, cool, for me. Like, Mm -hmm. that's why I didn't feel the pacing was weird like you did. Sure. Um, It definitely, the film's intent with including these different locations and things like that definitely affected me more than it affected you. Other than Paul Wegener, who's great... He's, he's like, I want to stress, he's real fun to watch in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's the, he's the draw. The rest of the cast in comparison is, I would say, like, just kind of competent, to be honest. Petrovich, who plays Arthur, he's handsome. And Alice Terry, who plays Margaret, she's beautiful. But both, to me, came off as very, like, reserved in their acting. I disagree with Alice. Okay. You know, she had a really good performance when it came to, oh, I'm hypnotized and having it, like, come off as, like, like, when she'd be, like, struggling against the hypnotism and stuff. I think she did a really good job with stuff like that. Okay. It's so tough because my mind keeps jumping ahead to those universal films that this movie is so resembling and thinking, you know, I I much prefer the actress who plays Mina in Dracula doing the same shtick. But it's kind of unfair to judge Alice Terry by, like, someone's future performance. Yeah. I I think it's, it's sort of interesting how... On the level, though, their performances are next to Paul Wegener. Mm. You know, in terms of thinking of an overall acting style of the film. You know, we've seen expressionist films like Hands of Orlac or Cabinet of Dr. Caligari where kind of everyone's overacting together. And so you know that this is just the style of the film. Yeah. And here, he's the only one doing it to such an extent that, like, the movie has characters point out in dialogue... (laughs) How melodramatic he is to try and, like, lampshade it. Yeah. I. <laughs> part of the reason why Haddo stands out like a sore thumb is, to kind of flip that, he fits right in with that little town yeah. and his sorcerer's tower. Yeah, like, one... He fits right in there, and whenever he's not in his little town, yeah. his stronghold, as the title card tells us, mm-hmm. um, he, he doesn't fit anywhere else. It's why, like, because he was the element of the film I was enjoying the most, it was why, like, an hour in, once he arrived at La Tourette and he had his dwarf assistant and he had his cape and they were in this town of stone buildings and, and sorcerer's towers and stuff, like, why I kind of started sitting up and paying attention then. Because all of a sudden, the movie felt like it had found its place and everything kind of seemed to fit in a way that earlier it wasn't quite gelling for me. Yeah. The thing that I was thinking of was, like, the whole idea of kind of not... of being tepid about these horror elements and then really diving into it towards the end reminded me of Student of Prague, ironically. Yeah. Um, Considering that Wigner's in both. I think the reason I'm having a problem with this film doing that, and I didn't with Student of Prague, was because Student of Prague was ten years ago. And, you know, and it was the first feature horror film that we even looked at. And it made sense that it sort of felt like it needed to gradually get the audience into things. And now we're in a cinematic landscape that has Nosferatu and has... Caligari. Yeah, Caligari, Phantom of the Opera. You know, and Phantom, for example, definitely ramps up as it goes. But it does, for me, a better job of, like, establishing that, like, hey, dudes, this is a horror film and giving us some spookiness earlier on. 
I think part of my problem with the pacing is just because it frustrates me because I want to be getting to that stuff. I'm at a point where I'm wanting to get to that stuff faster now. I think also The Magician is very light in its horror. Yeah. It's very tame. Mm -hmm. Uh, It has the scene inspired by Hexen. It has some, like, special effects with, like, smoke coming from water and stuff like that for the alchemy. Mm -hmm. And it has mood-setting stuff with, like, the lightning and, like, some of the lighting in the laboratory. That's it. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing really scary here. You could say that when he's getting the knives out of the cabinet with that has clearly not been dusted for 20 years. It's like a very slow, like, cutting of her shirt and, like, hypnotizing her as she's freaking out. I was on edge for that, but that's, like, maybe two minutes? Yeah, it's it's one of those things where, you know, again, we're almost, we're, we're giving this film a lot of horror points because we're recognizing iconography, you know? Definitely. We're going, ah, the spooky castle, ah, the laboratory, ah, the the assistant, ah, the the lightning, you know, the village, the, you know, all these things. And because all of that iconography is really in the last half hour, like, that's where we're seeing things. Now, granted, the film still has a lot in common with other horror films of this era, you know. You're looking forward to Dracula in identifying the relationship between Haddo and Margaret, but you could also look backwards to Phantom of the Opera. But, you know, I think that I, I was disappointed in the Hexen scene, the Bacchanalia, because it was so cool, but it was so tangential. Um, like, you could you could cut it and not lose anything at all, really, other than just how cool that scene is. It was appreciated, however, by me, just because it was the first sign that, oh, okay, we really are going to do something, like, weird and macabre in this movie. But it kind of stops the momentum of the plot for a while while we go on this tangent with Ingram to go and do these weird things. So I think there's a, a lot to recommend about this movie and a lot of cool things to watch, but it does have that awkward feeling of having the pieces, but not quite being sure how to put them together best yet. Before the break, you had mentioned how the critical response to this movie was that it was, like, too much. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really just with that hallucination scene maybe and maybe a bit the ending too but i think mainly that stuff (laughs) well yeah i mean if you go back to our hexen episode i talked about how the film that film had been banned in the u.s they couldn't even show it there i wonder if one reason why you're feeling a little cheated of the horror is because with these reviews and that kind of reputation you were expecting a bit more i know that's how i felt Mm -hmm. i mean it's worth it's probably worth it for us to consider that if you were an american audience you didn't see hexen you saw caligari but you didn't see nosferatu genuina got cut down in half for its u.s release really you've had kind of caligari and then like half of genuina phantom and that well yeah and then you have had these homegrown american films where you had phantom sure but then the rest of them have been stuff like the monster and the bat that have been a lot more about taking the the visual style of these films without much of the actual distressing content they kind of started to do that in this film too in the beginning because mm-hmm. they mixed a lot of comedy sure like her her roommate susie who disappears like halfway through the film but initially 
gets like a little bit of comedy and, and funny stuff at the start. But even at the snake charmer's tent, sure. when we see her die of the venomous snake and like the guy's hat is like on the balloon, like it's trying to do a similar thing, I think, to try to make it more palatable. Yeah. And, and that's all before the uh, hallucination scene. Yeah. And I feel like that was the stuff that I was like getting frustrated with too, because it was like, we were at that fair for far too long and it's because... They're trying to have that scene do the job of showing us Haddo and how he's a sketchy guy, but also giving us like some exoticism with these snake charmers, but also doing these comedy bits. And so these scenes kind of last too long. I think that, you know, the movie doesn't do enough really to seed the horror earlier, like Phantom did a good job of doing. Like Phantom built tension and suspense around that character, I think, a lot better. Even the bat. Sure. The bat did it, like, even with the comedy, too. Like, the bat did it a bit better than this movie. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that you bring up the critical response, because I think it is incredible to think of how, like, this film was so poorly regarded by the American audience in 1926 because of how tasteless it was (laughs) for how extreme all these horror elements were. You know, you have to remember that Dracula and Frankenstein are going to come out in five years. Mm -hmm. Just five years. And they have the same elements pushed much farther so that now they encompass the whole film. And those movies are smash hits. And so I I really was trying to think of, like, what was the element that those films have that this film doesn't? You know, here in 1926, we're not ready yet, but we're going to be in five years. Like, what's the thing that happens? And, I mean, in terms of American history, the main thing is the Great Depression happens. But I don't I'd have to think longer and harder about (laughs) why the Great Depression makes horror more palatable. But the other thing I was thinking of was the monsters in Dracula and Frankenstein, sort of as played by Lugosi and Karloff, respectively, have these elements of charm or sympathy that I thought maybe audiences, you know, have a capacity to enjoy watching those films better because... As evil as Dracula is, we find him charming. Or as murderous as Frankenstein's monster is, we find him sympathetic. Whereas Wigner's just kind of unhinged and unpleasant. And that's, I mean, as a modern audience, like, that's fun to watch. He's so over-the-top, skeevy, egomaniacal, <laughs> melodramatic kind of guy. But, like, even seeing his previous films mm-hmm. added to my enjoyment of seeing him in here. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, we, we loved him in this because we've seen him and stuff up to now, and it's just fun to see him again. He doesn't even have quite the sympathy that uh, the Phantom did. Like, him and the Phantom are kind of very similar, but the Phantom had this whole thing of, like, oh, well, I'm bad because I'm disfigured and people have mistreated me, so now I'm going to mistreat them. Haddo's character is just bad because he thinks he's better than everybody else. So I, yeah. I wonder if that makes it so that there's less less kind of fun to be had with him, and it's just more unpleasant to watch him be a jerk? I don't know if it's fair to do this because we haven't come across Lugosi's Dracula yet in the podcast, mm-hmm. but to compare the way Dracula hypnotizes Mina, mm-hmm. draws her in and is like, on paper... Skeevy. Mm-hmm. But Lugosi is charming as fuck. Mm-hmm. Whereas Wegener does the same deal. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, why the fuck are you in her house? 
<laughs> yeah. Right? And, like, yeah, it's a cool shot of, like, when she comes over to his house, he's looking down from the window into the courtyard and, like, calls out to her and to, like, initiate the hypnotism again. But it just feels like... You wonder why the hypnotism works. Yeah, it doesn't feel as charming. You say, like, why would you go with him? What hold does he have over you? You don't buy the hypnotism really as much, even though you know he... Intellectually, you know he's a magician. I think... You know, one of the interesting things about horror as a genre is it allows its audience to explore dark emotions, right? And kind of go to darker places in their psyche than they're normally comfortable with going to and explore those things. So this is a sensitive topic to kind of discuss, but I do feel like part of the appeal of a Dracula is... This kind of thrill of, you know, knowing you shouldn't go with him, knowing he's the bad guy, but kind of the thrill of like, oh, but what if I did go with him? You know, as an audience member, Mm. you know, you find Lugosi attractive, you know, he's going to eat you and it's going to be bad. But you you kind of want to go with him as an audience member because in as an audience member you're safe. You know nothing bad's going to happen to you. You're safe in the theater. So the fantasy of the film lets you sort of explore those darker elements of your psyche of going, what if I went with the bad boy? And losing yourself to those kind of explorations. And because Wigner doesn't have that kind of charm, because he is just a skeezy old man, Wigner's much closer to the kind of guy who in real life is probably going to, you know, prey upon and take advantage of younger, less powerful women. So he's not as appealing a fantasy figure to project those darker emotions onto. I think that's a really, really good point. I think you're hitting the nail on the head here. Yeah. Yeah. I have a question. Mm -hmm. When Margaret goes over to Haddo's place and he... Like, we see Wagner, like, being very emphatic in what he's saying, and then it's like we miss a title card, and finally we get to the end of him explaining whatever he's explaining, and he's like, that's why you can't marry Arthur. Right, and there's there's even an ellipsis at the start of that dialogue card to indicate that this is the end of a longer speech. Like, not that the version we were watching was missing a title card, but that mm. it had been purposely, we are not told what it is this thing that he said to her was that explains why she has to come with him and why she can't get married tomorrow. And I kept waiting for them to kind of go back and explain it, and they never do. What do you think gets omitted? Because I have some theories. I, I was trying to think of, like, stuff and none of them really made sense to me, so do you want to share what your theories are? Sure. I was thinking about the time period. Sure. And how, especially because the film itself brings up consummation in marriage. hmm So, in the fantasy bacchanalia scene, when it ends, like, towards the end, mm. there's this satyr carrying this unconscious woman, and Haddo calls him over... The satyr runs up and embraces Margaret, and then it fades to black slash back to the drawing room where she's been hallucinating. Uh, yeah, and then at that point we see that she's very visibly upset. Her, her face is in her hands and this kind of thing. So it made me wonder if the hallucination for her had gone more in depth about a satyr uh, violating her. Okay. And because she would not be considered a virgin anymore, that's why Arthur would not want to marry her. Yeah, but I mean, it's a it's a hallucination, right? Like, she's not actually, like, nothing's actually been done to her. I do, I do see what you're, you're kind of getting at. I feel like the pieces are, 
are kind of there. I'd, I'd almost like that theory because it would mean that that sequence had something to do with the, the plot. I wonder if it's more metaphorical about sort of going back to what I was saying earlier and exposing to herself her own kind of dark desires, right? Like as a woman in 1926, are you supposed to want random guys to come and ravish you, right? You're not supposed to. So I wonder if there's something going on there with Haddo saying, like, I know what your fantasies are. Because in the hallucination, mm-hmm. she's not freaking out when the secret yeah, comes to her. That's what I mean. Like, it's it's that idea of, like, many people have kind of fantasy lives that involve things that they would never want to happen to them in real life. Yeah. It's tough sometimes when you watch old movies because i mean we're not at the point where we have the production code yet Mm. certainly things are going to get interesting for the horror genre when that happens but you know there was a element of censorships already in place by this point in all these old movies there's like a reading between the lines you sometimes have to do Mm. and it can really break a movie if there's something that's vital to the plot that the movie isn't allowed to say that you have to read through the lines to do. It, it can get very, very tricky to kind of properly interpret things, especially because in a lot of cases, audiences of the time would be more in tune with picking up the codes mm-hmm. than, than we are today, uh, where we expect everything to kind of be a little more explicit. Yeah. I mean, that being said, you know, I can certainly see why if these are the elements that are present with her fantasies about this satyr and all these kind of other sexual elements that are just kind of a little bit under the surface, but not very far under the surface in this movie, you can see why, you know, an American audience would have said, like, oh, this is a little a little much for us in 1926. When we finished watching the film, mm-hmm. you made the comment about universal endings. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I think... It was something I noticed watching it where Haddo gets kicked into this furnace and dies. And the moment that happens, you know everything's fine and the people are rescued. You, they get Margaret off the table and they start walking down the staircase. And I was so used to what Sarah and I call the universal ending that Universal Studios has in its horror films that we already talked about in our Phantom of the Opera episode where once the villain's dispatched movie's over. And this movie doesn't do that. It doesn't drag it on too long, but we do get, you know, oh, what happened to the dwarf assistant? And oh, what happened to his notes? And oh, what's going to happen to the tower? And like, does the uncle make it out okay? And like, what about that drunk guy? And like, oh, let's see them get to the village and and, and hug each other because it's all going to be fine now and, and sort of stuff. And it's all stuff that like feels like natural denouement. It's not really the movie's fault, <laughs> but it did make me suddenly understand because I've always felt that the universal endings were so so weird in how sudden they were but this movie made me understand why universal does that because pretty much from the second haddo's dead i found myself losing interest in the movie very quickly <laughs> because it was like yeah i get it he's dead they're fine you know there's no other thing threatening them at that point so why are we still here so it was interesting to kind of have a baseline of comparison to <laughs> understand those future choices yeah so let's try to rank this movie the lowest i would put this film the floor. I put it above 1912's Jekyll and Hyde, starring James Cruz, and below the 1920 Jekyll and Hyde, starring John Barrymore. So do you see it going any lower than that? I 
have the same floor as okay. you. Okay. Um, I would not put it below the 1912 Jekyll and Hyde. I was basically looking between the 1912 Jekyll and Hyde and Student of Prague. Yeah. Um, really, just because Wagner's in Student of Prague, I really feel like it goes below, below, below Student of Prague. Okay. I would put, like, probably the highest I would put it is above Genuina. But that doesn't feel right. Okay. Yeah, I, I had the exact same range as you then. Oh, cool. Because um, my ceiling was above Student of Prague, below Hands of Orlac. That was as high as I was willing to put it. And depending it, it doesn't on... feel right, right? Um, it, it feels weird to put it that high. Yeah. But on the other hand, like, if I'm directly comparing the two movies, like, the amount of how much further we are on the journey to getting classic American horror with The Magician feels so significant to me. There's so much in this movie that's like, oh, without this we wouldn't have Frankenstein and Dracula, or at least not in the forms that we recognize them, that that feels so significant to me, and I like so many elements of it. You know, I, I, I made that my range, and then I was going to see where you were feeling, because we've been a bit at odds the last few episodes. <laughs> um, but then it turned out you had the exact same range, so now we have a tr- uh, now we're in trouble. So the reason why I, I would not put it above Student of Prague is because Student of Prague committed to more horror for me. Like, I think the title of it is, like, of that episode is legitimately spooky or something like that. Mm-hmm. Whereas this movie has mood-setting spookiness, but doesn't have someone accidentally shooting themselves. Doesn't have, like, you know, someone being stabbed off-scene. It's funny, because earlier in the episode I was comparing these two movies because they both do this thing of, like, taking a long time to get to the horror. But I feel like you have a point in that Student of Prague sort of slowly ramps things up, Mm. where you get Scapinelli showing up, and you get... Baldwin's double being created and, and ghosting out of the room, and you get um, the, the poker scene where he shows up out of the shadows, and then you get, you know, him killing the guy at the duel and wiping his sword with the blood, you know, and it's go and go and go, and it, it feels sort of like a, a train slowly, you know, speeding up. Chugga, 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 yeah, chugga, and then yeah. it's like boom, and we get to the end. And I feel like that film, because it is so early, mm-hmm. has justification for why it's slow to start. Sure. And like I was saying earlier tonight, like, that was my problem with The Magician. Instead of feeling like a train that's slowly ramping up, it sort of is more like a gear shift. Yeah, so that's why I would put it below Student of Prague. Okay. As far as, like, eerie tales and how, like, Geschichten, eerie tales commits, besides that last one, like, it goes for horror mm-hmm. consistently. Mm-hmm. Genuina, it has just been, like, a real thorn in my side because I really feel like we we cut it a lot of slack because of the version we were watching. Mm-hmm. But I, I feel like to compare this, I feel like I would put it below. I feel like I want to see a version of The Magician where half of it's missing. <laughs> like, like, that was... <laughs> Like, that was my problem with this movie, is, like, I want to I want to cut, like, half an hour out of it. Genuina, like, is such a mess yeah, that like, it's, it's hard to compare it with other films because you're going, like, wow, does a movie, does having a story that makes sense put this above Genuina? I kind of figured it out as, like, while the hypnosis is better conveyed in The Magician, mm-hmm. I like the fear of women's sexuality horror yeah. more than whatever the magicians telling us to be afraid of like obviously like lack of agency 
or agency being taken away, but also, like, is it just the occult? Is it your fantasies being known? Like, I feel like the problem with the magician is, like, the horror... So there's two ways to look at the horror of the magician, and they both kind of suck. Because <laughs> um, one is you could see it as from the point of view of Margaret, in which case the horror is just, like, that you live in a society with no agency where, like, a random creepy old dude can just show up and abduct you and declare you his wife anytime he wants to, and he's probably just going to kill you. Or you can look at it from Arthur's point of view, in which case the horror is just, like, you got to protect your woman from creepy weirdos. So it's, like, the, the, the fear is of creepy weirdos taking your woman, in which case... You know, does it do a better or worse job of that than Phantom of the Opera? A, a worse job. A hundred percent. So, the fact of the matter is is that the magician at the end of the day has a very standard horror plot of villain captures damsel in distress, right? Yeah. So, kind of where I'm actually, like, torn mm. is between Sealed Room, Frankenstein, and the Barrymore, Jekyll and Hyde. Wait, so you're saying it goes below the bat, then? I, I would say it goes below the bat because the bat keeps the tension going, mm. um, even with the comedy. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, as much as the mood was continuing in The Magician for me, it wasn't for you, and I think that says something. Yeah, I it's tough to rank it against the bat because I wonder, like, how much credit should I give The Magician for not being a comedy, for being an American horror movie that's not trying to be a comedy, but then I remember the fact that it's also an American horror movie that hedges its bets on being a horror movie until the last act. Yeah. And then it goes for it. Whereas The Bat is, like, it's shot like a horror movie all the way through, even in the scenes where it's being funny. Yeah. Yeah, it's tough. I think it's going to go above Sealed Room for sure, then. Mostly because then we can push Sealed Room out of the top ten. <laughs> I mean, yes, I really I really want to do that because I feel like we're always like, why is the Sealed Room so high? For me, it goes above the Sealed Room because even though it has problems with the consistent mood, it has better consistency than the Sealed Room. Sure, which just has 50% two people kissing and 50% two people suffocating. So as someone who enjoyed both The Magician and The Bat quite a bit... So I'm going to ask you this. When the bat was coming after Dale versus when Haddo is coming after Margaret, which was actually scarier for you as someone who enjoyed both those movies quite a bit? Probably the bat mm-hmm. should go above. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I say that for like more than just that scene because those two scenes that were that you're asking me to compare are scary for different reasons. Mm-hmm. And to be fair, like part of why I really enjoyed The Magician is because I did have a bit of a distance between feeling the same kind of scared because Paul Wagner straddled that line of like, yeah, this is a little funny. Sure. Versus the bat, like seeing that mask come at you, it's, it's just like, it, holy shit. It's because he's so over the top in his performance that it, it kind of, it really does kind of at times cross the line into camp, right? Definitely. Like he's he's a little campy in that performance, whereas it's hard for the bat to be campy because he's just wearing a, a horrifying terror mask, so there's not much for him to do. And honestly, to compare the movies as a whole, I still would put the bat above the magician. Okay. Then I'm fine with going with, like, your call on this. It's in the range that I had, and, like I said, like, you really enjoyed both those movies more, so I feel like 
if you can put it in the spot, then I'm good with that. So coming in at number 10 then, sealing off our top 10 from the sealed room, is going to be The Magician from 1926, directed by Rex Ingram. If you would like to check out this list, you can check it out at our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can also find the playlist to watch The Magician, now that we've spoiled everything for you. <laughs> um, you can also find our ask box to submit an appeal. Uh, you can also submit an appeal through email. Email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com. And feel free to just uh, holler at us on uh, Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday, and you can find it on SoundCloud and iTunes. Please subscribe and review us on iTunes. That's how other folks can find the show. Or you can just tell people about it, and they'll learn about it through word of mouth. But internet, Ben. Sure. Internet word of mouth. <laughs> <laughs> what are we watching next week? Next week we've got a treat. After five straight films out of Hollywood, we're heading back to Germany, uh, where we haven't been since Hands of Orlac, for a film written and directed by the writer of Nosferatu, Henrik Galeen, starring the stars of Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, Conrad Veidt, and Werner Krauss. It is a remake of an earlier Paul Wegener film that we have discussed in this episode. It is the remake of Student of Prague, with Conrad Veidt as Baldwin and Werner Krauss as Scapinelli. I am super stoked for this. Cool. Then we shall see you guys next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye! Bye!